when you combine those two power tools, vision and breathing, you can really get into states really quickly and you start to be able to maneuver your states extremely well. Very few people on this planet maneuver in real time. One thing you do in a class or when you're getting tutorial, it's another thing when you're really stressed, when you're really exhausted to be able to shift yourself under conditions of stress. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Stickler. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you about a protocol that I'm passionate about that I use in my practice. You know, everyone wants to slow down aging, but few are really doing it the right way. There's something I do recommend for my clients doing just two days a month. It's a bodily cleanse that helps get rid of old defective cells. These are sometimes called senescent cells or referred to as zombie cells. And they are shown to be related to so many symptoms of poor aging. This bodily cleanse is a supplement which contains a group of ingredients called senolytics. Senolytic ingredients help our body to flush senescent cells helping with easier repair and rejuvenation from muscles to joints to how we feel every day. Qualia Synolytic is the bodily cleanse supplement taken just two days a month for healthy aging that you have to try. Now, research on aging and longevity, including a beta study on Qualia Synolytic, shows that Synolytic supplementation can play a huge role in enhancing how we age. Now, to learn more about Synolytic research and to try Qualia Synolytic risk-free for 100 days, Go to neurohacker.com, use the code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for a free gift with purchase. That's Qualius Synolytic for better aging at neurohacker.com. We are delighted to have Andrew Huberman back today. If you haven't listened to the podcast that we did with him, we'll link it in the show notes here. Andrew Huberman is a professor of neuroscience at Stanford very well-known neuroscience community for his work with neuroscience vision, which is going to come up today, as well as the neuroscience fear, and from fear, also non-fear, courage, and other kinds of state modification. And so we did a whole show on that, and then we wanted to do a follow-up and be able to go deeper into some specific practices that people can implement, a little bit more of the practical understanding and practices that people can implement to work with fear and state change. And Andrew has brought a partner with him, Brian McKenzie, who is new to the Collective Insights podcast. And we're really delighted to have Brian, internationally recognized a coach and innovator in the movement, health, fitness space, helped create the kind of CrossFit endurance combination between the running and endurance sports and more CrossFit kind of training world, and has been really an innovator in using breath and hypoxia training and hyperthermia and hypothermia training in performance training. And so they have teamed up together to work on some performance enhancing and state enhancing techniques. I'm really excited to dive in. So guys, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So people are used to breath work being involved in performance and state, but not necessarily work with vision. But your work in vision is directly related to this also. So kind of what got you moving from just studying these things in how to make scared mice not as scared and how to deal with certain kinds of vision disorders into the human performance place. Yeah. So for instance, the work in our lab that focuses on visual repair has been carried out on mouse models where you can do a lot of genetic manipulations and those kinds of things. So that's the reality. We do this in laboratory mice. And a few years ago, we had a discovery that we could use patterns of neural activity to regenerate cells from the eye back to the brain, restore vision in, in these animal models. And so 
that led me to take the leap into human clinical trials. Uh, we have a clinical trial underway at Stanford for repairing visual pathways in humans using virtual reality. And so the platform for moving from animal models to humans was set up. And then my lab has also been exploring, as you know, from the previous podcast and some other discussions, I'm trying to understand the neural basis of visually evoked fear. These are the kinds of fears that uh, well, with phobias, PTSD, and even in certain forms of addiction that people are dealing with is or what you know, how what you see impacts how you feel. We were discovering and continue to work on discovering brain areas that are involved in that in these animal models. And then a really talented postdoc in my lab, Melissa Silmas, came to me and said, you know, I want to work look at this stuff in human and I think virtual reality is the way to do it. So we built it the equivalent of the mouse lab in for humans, which is essentially a box where humans can go in in virtual space and look at how their physiology both Certain people can actually do brain recordings deep in the brain, edited in there by neurosurgeons. Uh, most people typically come in and we're measuring things like sweating, heart rate, and whatnot. So we can measure fear, which we'd like to move away from the more subjective description of what that is towards physiology. Okay. So then, you know, through my own interest in state and just understanding how important one's own state of mind and state of body is for physical performance, emotional performance, cognitive performance, good days, bad days, terrible days, excellent days. I, you know, always been interested in figuring out what are the tools that are out there that allow people to adjust their state. That led into an exploration of who out there is at least public about being very good at controlling their state in ways that they can teach and show, right? So I know that there are monks in the Himalayas that can move their pupils independently, and that's beautiful and wonderful, but I need a protocol if I'm going to then evaluate that protocol in the laboratory. But I started um, talking to various people, and it was actually Scott Carney who wrote What Doesn't Kill Us, told me about this guy, Brian McKenzie, who I knew about from reading some of Tim Ferriss's books. I actually had read those and I was never a serious runner, but Brian has you know quite extensive accomplishments from the running world. And Scott put us in touch. And at that time, Brian was out in Virginia Beach to work with the military community there. And we got on a phone call and it was immediately clear to me that we were going to work together in one capacity or another, because he was telling me about the various breathing tools that he was using that really could be quantified in terms of variables like inhale duration, exhale duration, hold duration. And so we're suddenly, you know, there was a, there was a common language that we could think about testing in the laboratory. Several discussions later in a face-to-face -face meeting, we realized that my other interest, which was to bring how vision can be used to adjust state, and we can get into this more later podcast, could be merged with the kind of breathing protocols that Brian was developing and cultivating with athletes and high performers and military and CEOs and typical people as well. Fast forward through many discussions and real interest in merging the best of controlling one state through breathing and the best of controlling one state through the use of the visual system. And we realized that we had the potential for a really valuable tool, aka a commercial product that we could put out to people. That's what really cemented partnership and, and the business partnership is really where we decided to move forward first. Yeah. So this is the movement from science to applied science and then to tech where you recognize someone's scared, their breathing changes, their vision changes. So then can we consciously change vision and breathing to be able to change their state and affect sympathetic, parasympathetic type dynamics? And one of the things that's so cool is there's really no drug interactions. There's no liver toxicity. There's no risk like there would be with any kind of biochem. And it is really kind of free or close to free once the information is there and directly relevant to everyone. And of course, if you're working on something like increasing parasympathetic tone, that's not a specific treatment for a disease, but it does happen to be health promoting across everything. So I'm really excited about what you all are doing in the space. Brian, would you share with us a bit of how do you go from 
kind of peak performance training and endurance and then, you know, cross-training type worlds to studying state induction. It's interesting because my background began in, in, in movement and understanding movement to a large degree, namely within the running and endurance world. And one of the critical components of that was dealing with people who are injured a lot. And that is something that comes up between 50 and 70% at any given time in that industry where you know people are dealing with some sort of an injury. Injury is nothing more than a movement fault that's been repeated over began the journey with that and understanding, well, if you use strength and conditioning, you can actually make an athlete stronger. They start to move a little better, positive responses, then stumble upon some breathing devices, looking back on the yoga world and, and what happens there and starting to connect that, yeah, breathing pattern actually matter. And, you know, the diaphragm actually working correctly, you know, innervate that parasympathetic tone. You know, we, we start to see all these things start to show and we see that they're all connected. Thus moves into if I'm more parasympathetically engaged or I'm using a breathing pattern that's doing that and I'm actually altering that physiological response that could be happening if I were more sympathetic dominant and take an athlete who's obviously in an aerobic place, but their mouth breathing heavy. And we, we tend to see more of that sympathetic cascade get set off and we start to see somebody who's in a compromised position. To where when we can change that, bring them more into nasal breathing, we develop that, it, it inevitably changes the entire state of the individual. Or if we're talking from a recovery standpoint, if I'm just huffing and puffing and you know trying to blow the house down in order to recover, I'm not actually doing the best I can at recovery and utilizing what's networked through my own biology to a large degree. So the, the physiological intercept is there with the breathing and then... Andrews and my work and, and, and coupling that now with vision, we're starting to get the visual stuff out there, just peppering it a little bit to where athletes now starting to really go like, so if I use this visual cue and this breathing cue, I've got a double in, you know, yeah, you're using two sensory, you know, you're using two ways of, of altering things through your own physiology with things that don't need, you know, outside intervention. So you found out that as you were working with very specific forms of breath pattern, you could not only get people to perform better, but to recover faster and get injured less, which are all huge deals, as well as then you started to find that it also affected their anxiety, their other aspects of quality of life. 100%. I've worked with a number of you know high-level competitors, you know, gold medalists, top performers. They're dealing with a tremendous amount of anxiety. And and. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, you're going up in front of the world to compete, and you know, what do you do? You know, in that moment, well, you can control your breathing, you can control your visual cueing. These are things that can actually, you know, help with all of that. But the the interesting part's been it's not necessarily before or after. Those are the no-brainers. It's what's happening in the moment. Yeah, what's happening between footsteps? What's happening be between strikes? What's happening between reps? Are you actually keeping in more of that parasympathetic tone that allows you to actually rebound quicker and, and be more effective with that sympathetic tone? You know, it's it's really profound because as Andrew mentioned, there might be somebody in the Himalayas. When you think about the yoga tradition or the Taoist traditions or any of the traditions that studied longevity and human performance where they just, they didn't have what we call science, but they had smart people paying attention over the course of a long period of time. You look at focus of the eyes and you look at breath work as like some of the very first things that happen, right? In the yogic system, yantra and pranayama are some of the like foundational things. But 
it's it's pretty absent in comparison to something like nutrition. And modern performance, you think about, okay, so how much do we dial in our nutrition? You look at a bodybuilder or an athlete making sure not only their macros, but their micros are precisely dialed in and all the blood tests we do to make sure that our endocrinology and all the biochemists dialed in. Then you say, okay, well, how long could I last without food? And to just have some sense of how critical it is. And then how long could I last without breath? And how well would I perform without vision? And to, to get a sense that all of the macros that come in are oxygen rate limited in terms of what they can do in a cell. And all of our performance is vision rate limited. And that we just don't pay anywhere near as much attention to it. It's almost like as big a field as nutrition is, this is comparably big and even more fast acting field. And you guys are really helping open that up. Interesting vision, as you mentioned, you know, the yoga traditions and meditation traditions, it's all about vision and breathing, right? Are you going to concentrate on your so-called third eye center? Are you going to use a soft gaze? You know, part, my interest in using vision as a tool to adjust arousal state really stemmed from two sources. One is observation of animals and the different species of animals that have different levels of aggression or let's call it mellowness or placidity. So if you look at the, all the animals that are grazing type animals, we know based on the neuroscience of their anatomy that those animals generally have panoramic vision. They can see everywhere around them and their job is mainly to eat grass and observe for incoming predators. They're so placid at their core that the heart of their being is that their tendency is to be when they're awake that they're pretty relaxed that they pretty quickly go back to being relaxed. They'll do some shaking, which itself is interesting, and then go back to being relaxed. They are basically a mellow animal. A hunter, most smart hunters like lions and tigers sit around all day pretty relaxed. And then when it's time for them to hunt, they go into a virgin's eye movement and they do this, you know, calculate time and distance very carefully, attack and kill, and they eat. Now, humans have the capacity, just like those uh, large carnivores, to move back and forth between both. And so when you think about soft gaze, which is the kind of like relaxed gaze versus focused virgin eye movements, virgin meaning converge on a single point in order to judge time and distance very carefully on and kill. So that was one interest was sort of a, the naturalistic understanding of comparative neurology, really comparative neuroscience. And then the other one is that if you look into any of the martial arts traditions, there's also this idea about dialing out your focus in order, and I don't even think martial artists necessarily really know why this is, but it turns out that the panoramic vision kind of paradoxically is actually much faster reaction time. The cells and the neurons that carry that information are much thicker. And it's just basic physics that the bigger the cables, kind of like a thicker pipe, the faster the conduction velocity. So your reaction times are actually much faster when you're not focusing on one thing. Kind of ironically, when you get stressed, you tend to focus on one thing. There's actually an adjustment. The pupil gets bigger that allows you to look at one thing in your immediate environment and you lose all the other information. Now, that's never really been put forward. That whole set of concepts has never really been put forward into a set of protocols. And so when Brian and I started talking about his breathing protocols could downregulate people into more relaxed parasympathetic states or more sympathetic and focused states, we came up with the idea to pair those two, right? Really start pairing panoramic vision with a exhale emphasized nasal breathing to get people into more relaxed states. And conversely, you know, more virgins, eye movements combined with more pranayama-esque type breathing, although here I'm using kind of you know broad strokes. And we realize that now when you combine those two power tools, vision and breathing, you can really get into states really quickly and you start to be able to maneuver your states extremely well. Very few people on this planet maneuver in real time. One thing you do in a class or when you're getting tutorials, another thing when you're really stressed, when you're really exhausted to be able to shift yourself under conditions of stress. 
And the last point I'll make about that, I did listen to some of the stuff that I know another person you've talked to, maybe on here or in a separate venue is Mark Devine. And he, it's interesting. He, he's talked about some of this in the form of soft gaze and accessing subconscious. And so, you know, I want to just tip my hat to him. And, you know, it was the first time I'd heard it independently through another source described in a kind of protocol format, really cool stuff. I'll connect you guys with Mark because it makes sense, right? His program went from something like a 94% fail rate for SEAL training to a 90 plus percent success rate of the people he had trained first. And if you think about like the pain and the cost of the failure, like what a humongous thing that is. And he said it all was state control because he said everybody who failed had the physiologic capability. They just got their ego involved and overdid it. So they lost their endurance or they got scared or something. So it was almost all working with state control to be able to have their actual capacity really come on board when they needed it. Yeah, I've, know, I've known Mark for quite some time. He, he, he's a good friend. We've talked several times about this. He's been on the, the breathing thing and understood this for quite some time. And I think he's, he's, he's really dialed in on all this and really done a very good job. You know, where people were trying to get into a community that didn't really, they were looking at the physicality of things versus the actual, you know, state of going into these things. So something that you were mentioning, Andrew, that I think is just such a key insight that is obvious once you hear it, but I don't think it's obvious for everyone before they've thought about it, is psychological state is correlated with changes in physiology. And the correlation actually has bi-directional causation, meaning if I get scared, my breath is going to get shallow, my focus is going to change. But that also means I can have conscious override of my breath and my vision and change state. And the fact that we actually have the ability to have conscious override of autonomic nervous system function is just awesome. And I mean, that, so that's the space that you guys are in. And there's obviously going to be more things than just vision and breath, as you mentioned, shaking. So that's the, the polyvagal theory and the TRE work. Out of curiosity, have you guys looked at that work much to think about inclusion of it? We haven't put it into our into the state app, which we can talk about more yet. I actually went recently and took a, what they called neurogenic yoga, but it was really this neuro, neurogenic release where it basically involves activating the, I never pronounced it right, the psoas muscles. You sort of get them into spasm. Yeah. Then lower back and you got to move your knees at varying distances and get the shaking release. I find it incredibly relaxing afterwards. And, and the logic that they spelled out at the beginning was really smart that there are these natural postures that embody defensive postures when you're covering your vital organ. And sadly, my postdoc, Melissa Yilmez, showed the equivalent thing in animal models that there are these natural responses to threats, and now she's studying them in humans. So we're actually we're monitoring body postures. That's great. But that's one half of the equation. What I like about the kind of neurogenic release stuff that other people have done is that it says, okay, if there's a natural defensive posture, there's likely to be a natural release process. Animals do shaking to lay out. Shaking in human culture, at least the ones that most of us exist in, is kind of considered strange. And so most people kind of suppress walk around doing the old shake off after a car accident or something, but maybe we should start to rethink that. And I think the idea is wonderful because it means that there are physical practices, just like breathing, maybe shaking or different things of psoas engagement and then release physical protocols that allow you to achieve different neural states of mind is what we're all about. That's what Brian, that, that was the point of convergence. It shouldn't be mysterious. If I want to get stronger, I know how to do that. There are protocols all over the web. If I want to get faster, if I want to run further, if I want to get more flexible, there should be, and he and others, of course, it's not just us, are creating protocols that don't rely on these murky spaces like mindfulness, which are very hard to quantify, very hard to measure progress. And that's really been our goal. And I, you know, Brian can comment more on this. 
you know, some of what's come together in this, what we're calling the state app technology is the ability to customize, regularly update your progress and actually measure how well you're buffering stress based on your use of protocols. The same way that you might do an analysis every once in a while, I call it analysis, but you might go in and see how much stronger you've gotten, how much fle more flexible you've gotten. You should be able to say, hey, how much better am I now at buffering stress? So I don't know, maybe you want to talk about the carbon dioxide tolerance is a very interesting aspect of this that doesn't get an airtime in my opinion. Yeah, it brought up a good point. You know, there's stimulus and there's response, but in between those is choice. And this is where that physiological intercept exists. And this is where that, you know, the, the, like when we went shark diving on a cage with a shark, you're out there with a great white and you realize very quickly that this is a very real situation. And you have choices and you're you're actually trained to do something which is not run from the shark and actually go at the shark if the shark comes towards you, which is very different. The only, you know, not the only, but one of the key things that we obviously were using was breathing and and using a, a rhythm of breathing versus a shallow, short breath to control that. And you and I actually saw a variable difference in that and my ability to not be stuck on one shark, look at others. And this is in any situation, you know, this is, you know, it doesn't need to be shark guy. It could be getting off the couch and out of your house because you're terrified of going outside. These are all the same types of things in, in, in essence on a, you know, kind of physiological level for people. They're just subjective to a large degree. So using that choice and getting people the skill development of actually using protocols in real time inevitably is nothing different than, hey, I'm strength training and I'm squatting. Well, you squat every day anyway, but all of a sudden you start getting up easier from the couch, you start moving better. And this is largely where we really want to get people integrated. And so they have a tool that is real time. So Ryan, I want to ask you some questions about breath and just to frame it up. I mean, this is probably obvious to most people who exercise, but if we just use the analogy that would be relevant for at least some people of if you're trying to mod or augment a car to go faster, the first thing that you do is pay attention to the air intake and whether it's a cold air intake or ram charger, supercharger, that those are all different ways to get more oxygen in so you can combust more hydrocarbon. And this is no different in human cells. So paying attention to the ability to process more air effectively is obviously a big deal from just total cellular energy and metabolism point of view, in addition to what it does neurologically, right? So we're looking at it affecting the bottom-up systems in terms of the energy of the cells and the top-down systems in terms of the neuroendocrine regulation of the like that's what's so fucking fascinating is if you think about the human as a self-organizing system that has both bottom-up and top-down regulation, breath is immediately affecting both simultaneously, which is really fascinating from a kind of cybernetic point of view. But to talk to us a little bit about, we're not just saying deep breathe. You're talking about very specific things where the length of the inhale, the length of the exhale, the length of the hold at the top and hold at the bottom all do different things. Yeah. Share, share some about that. Yeah. The very interesting part of this is that dependent upon your own physiology, we all have, we seem to have reaction to specific patterns. So if I were to take a box breathing set or, or, you know, just a typical pranayama, like we've done this with Andrew and I, right? Where he, he did a one, one, two, one cadence in the morning. And I, which is something I use, it put him to sleep. And where with me, it kind of gets me in this very kind of alert but calm place ready to get about my day whereas on the flip side of that 
he does more of a hold or an inhale hold and an and a exhale and it's just a it's like a one three two combination and then it repeats itself right he gets up regulated from that he gets into that alert calm feeling right where i feel like I, i'm ready to just calm down and go to sleep or take a nap and so what we were looking at was a inside performance let's just say we had somebody work you know working out or riding a bike right we start to see breathing patterns that are shifting regardless of telling anybody anything. If you look at that, like you're going back to your energy levels, if my CO2 tolerance is relatively low, you're going to have somebody who's breathing quite rapidly. So you're going to have somebody who's over-breathing to a long degree at an early stage, which means we're becoming more sympathetic or even we're using more glycogen quicker versus using more of the mitochondria and being oxidative and using fat as that primary source of fuel, right? And so when we we start to all play around with these breathing patterns, we start to see where we can check off where somebody really is no longer aerobic and they're becoming anaerobic. And if we can start to control those things, it becomes a group, like train those things, it becomes an incredible tool to show an athlete or an individual where they're either A, move off with movement, because if I'm moving poorly, I'm going to default to a poor breathing position, which is dropping my jaw open and breathing through my mouth. And I can just breathe through my, use my chest. And I'm no longer needing to use my diaphragm as the primary vehicle for breathing. It'll still work, but probably isn't working to its effectiveness, right? So what we see largely is that there's a lot of variance within people and CO2 tolerance. But if I'm actively engaging in a program where I'm starting to develop a higher level of CO2 tolerance, Ironically, I'm now utilizing oxygen more effectively. And this is what we see in free diving communities where they develop high, 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 high levels of CO2 tolerance and will hold their breath at extreme levels and they're highly specific. And although we're not trying to get somebody that specific, but we're trying to get them to utilize oxygen at higher levels. So we start to play around with that. So you have really it becomes an individualized process, which is kind of the key to what we're developing and really working on is what are those set points? What's your CO2 tolerance level look like? What, what does that look like? And then what protocols work best with you in specific areas? And then if we're actually training or working out or we're in a performance situation, what's idyllic there as well. And so it really is a lot, but it's, it becomes how well are we actually using the oxygen? I'm curious if either of you guys can speak to this. If someone is training in endurance sports or they're training in free diving in particular, their CO2 tolerance is going up. Physiologically, what's happening that mediates that? Is that increasing hemoglobin? Is it mitochondrial biogenesis? Is it metabolic flexibility in terms of the cells? What, what's the physiology that's changing that increases the CO2 tolerance capacity? I would say all of it, but... It's really getting that mitochondria and developing that aerobic capacity to a large degree, the ability to deal with more CO2 in the system. And so as the body starts to make those adaptations, it starts to utilize that oxygen more effectively at higher CO2 levels, right? To where when we when we hit that for those threshold markers, we become more, there, there's just more work than the, than the mitochondria can actually handle. It's also that the data are totally in on this, but I mean, there are areas of the brain that sense CO2 in the brainstem, right? That makes sense. And they, they trigger a breathing and a reflex. And, and so free drivers are very good at, at suppressing that reflex. And so that's some neural neuroplasticity mm-hmm. question. Um, maybe just for the listeners so that they, 
they know so in terms of protocols, what Brian was referring to is what we're putting together is something that is customized to the individual, some people buffer CO2 better than others, that updates as you get better. And that can, we, you know, one of the sort of moments where we realized that we, we had to work together was when, you know, we're thinking it shouldn't be the case that you have a catch-all breathing program or vision program or any state control program that just like you wouldn't give the same dosage of a prescription drug to people, to everybody, it has to be individualized, but that not only that, but that you, there ought to be protocols that could get you into specific desired states. So a lot of what we've put together is something you could say, okay, I want to be calmer. I want to be more energetic. I want to be more alert. There's also the more subjective stuff. Like I want to be more present, which is kind of interesting because it's not really clear exactly what that is neurologically. Nonetheless, you know, we put together protocols that really capture people's individuality in terms of ability to buffer CO2. Now, okay, so in terms of CO2 tolerance, people often say, well, what should I do? And, you know, Mark talks about this a little bit too, right? One of the best things you can do for yourself, provided that you're not speaking or swimming, is to nasal breathe, right? And so Brian's really been a big proponent of nasal breathing during endurance sports. At first, take some adjusting, but then you find this enormous untapped capacity. This is also true if you're taking an exam or you're going into a stressful circumstance, personal circumstance, whatever it is, shifting to nasal breathing, think it, we think can really help blow off more CO2 more rapidly. Now, so it tends to make you feel less stressed. Now, it's it's interesting too, because the CO2 tolerance is something that can be measured sort of back of the envelope calculation of your ability to slowly let out carbon dioxide through your nose after a big inhale and how long and slowly you can release that tells you how nearly you're able to to control and withstand different states of CO, of CO2 within the body. And we see huge variation that doesn't seem to depend so much on fitness level. People who have so-called CO2 blowout times where they're exhaling over a, over a minute, or how could that possibly be? And so there's huge variation. Those represent starting points for different breathing protocols to get into different states. And so I look forward to a day hopefully not too long from now, when it's no longer the case that you say, oh, I'm going to do this meditation, or this breathing protocol. So really it's tailored to you in the moment, right? And the, the other wonderful thing about breathing and vision protocols is I'm not trying to knock on meditation, but unlike what I call depart and sit meditation, where you're like, oh yeah, everybody, I'm going to go meditate for half an hour, or even five minutes. Breathing and vision are available to you in real time, right? So it's not so important that you completely avoid stress. It's what it, what happens when you're already stressed, right? You know, I think that we would all love to never get triggered, never launch into these chronic stress states, but that's not realistic, right? If you're a normal human being pursuing life goals, you're going to, you know, reasonable life goals, you're going to encounter stress. And so breathing and vision allow you to do that in real time. And that I think is one of the enormous powers that these sorts of protocols that it's not like, okay, see you later. I'm going to go on retreat, which is wonderful. I'm sure it has real utility. But what about in the real world when suddenly you get a text message that something you thought was going to happen isn't going to happen and you happen to hit the car in front of you? It's how you handle those circumstances. And you you can't prepare for those, but you can learn, to, you can prepare to react better. And that's where breathing and vision really come in handy. Okay. You guys both just said so many really fascinating things. I'll see which ones to respond to first. Regarding personalization. Yep. It's fascinating because like, so with, with Neurohacker, we're working on a, on the infrastructure to personalize nutrient delivery. And it's amazingly fucking difficult for nutrients, right? Because how people use a particular nutrient depends on their genetics. And, but it's not one SNP. It's looking at combinatorics across lots of SNPs to be able to understand that. And it depends upon how much they're already getting in their diet. And then it, 
so many things. And then when you look at the total number of nutrients and then the combinatorics across all those, right? Like say a handful of them all have methyl donors in them. How do they affect each other? The And then being able to do like the, even the compounding pharmacy of the delivery of that is really tricky. So we're, we're working on a platform where people can upload biodata. We can customize formulations and have a robotically automated compounding pharmacy. But think about what a bitch that is. But then with regard to breast, it's because there's so many variables, right? And, and the delivery mechanism of it's tricky. With regard to breast and vision, it's like, okay, how, how long is my inhale? How long is my exhale? How long is the hold at the top and bottom? I've got four variables. And if I fuck it up, the worst thing that happens is I feel kind of shitty for a second and then I do it differently. And the same with vision, like I'm focusing a far way away or I'm focusing close, like the number of variables are not that many and people can get the real time feedback and play with it. So the combinatoric space really does allow personalization without the need for external diagnostics safely, which is awesome. A really interesting point. The whole purpose of that was to incorporate something where it would up, it would be personalized and update to you in real time. I can tell you right now, like I traveled yesterday, my capacity to buffer stress is different than when I've been home for a few days, sleeping regularly, maybe in jet lag, et cetera. So the ideal state shift should be, okay, let's say I have to do some focus work this afternoon and I'm feeling tired when I want to kind of be alert and focused. And then tonight I want a good night's sleep. The protocol that, that it spits back to me to do takes into account my carbon dioxide tolerance real time. That was kind of difficult or that was too easy or that was just right. And then it updates. So it's, it should be dynamic, right? And so again, not to knock on meditation, but I think it's rare for anyone to come around during meditation on your shoulder and say, hey, you know, how mindful are you feeling? Well, my thoughts are kind of drifty or, you know, I'm feeling really focused or whatever it is. You would have the ability to move into the spaces that we want to move. In fact, I would define a really powerful human being as somebody that can control their state very well. A puppy and a child can't do that. So they have to outsource it to adult animals in their pack and humans, right? As when we reach adulthood, we're supposed to be able to control our state. Now, these days, one of the main interests in developing these tools wasn't just for athletes and high performers. You know, I'm in the academic community, if you will, the elite academic community, just by virtue of the people I'm surrounded by. And they're some of the most stressed out people on the planet, and they study the brain. And some of them are exceptionally good at buffering stress. I'm always impressed at colleagues that can just move through spaces if nothing bothers them. But then you, when you start talking to athletes, they'll reveal to you and this is something Brian and I get into a lot, is that they tend to be very good at high performing in a narrow trench, meaning a limited set of activities. And you take them out of that and they've got to fall to pieces. And I don't get any amusement out of that. What you're really seeing is that their neurology, just like the guy, we can all see, you know, that guy that just bench presses all day, doesn't do anything else, really needs to hit the squat rack, maybe do something else in addition to that. A lot of us have become like that intellectually and cognitively and emotionally too. So what do we do? We start limiting behavior. And so a really effective human being can tolerate a number of different circumstances, right? It doesn't have to be high dangerous circumstances, it can just function well and know they can function well, right? You could even define confidence as the ability to know that you're going to function well, regardless of circumstance. And so Brian was telling me these stories, you know, we travel together, we're talking about things and talking science. He's telling me about these athletes and these people I've looked up to for, for so long, many of whom are exceptional in their sport or exceptional in their craft. But then they fall apart in a different domain. You see the same thing in any community where you're looking at high performance. I would argue one of the best things you can learn to do is control your state. This is this is very interesting because I know, you know, Brian's work coming into this was saying, all right, you you have great weightlifting capacity. Can you run? You know, and, and looking at adaptive capacity 
in the physiologic domain, but when you talk about adaptive capacity writ large, we do train people to be specialists. And in the age of rapidly increasing AI, which is very good at specialism and not great right now at generalism, that's actually the stupidest thing to keep doing, right? Our ability to do not just hill climbing algorithms, but valley crossing algorithms. How do we identify totally new capacities we haven't trained in at all and quickly adapt to be able to do that is probably the most adaptive capacity that we need right now. Now, of course, there's skill development, which you're not going to get that quickly. If I know how to do math, it doesn't automatically mean that I know shit about biology. But if I know math and I'm not terrified of going up in front of the chalkboard, and then I'm in a biology class and I'm terrified of it, even the biology sense-making I would normally have to ask good questions is going to be gone because I'm terrified. So the state control doesn't give me new specific domain capacity, but it keeps me from being incapacitated. And if you look at how much, whether it's public speaking or a startup or dating or whatever it is, how much people don't do that they could actually learn to do just because they're afraid. I mean, it's, it's tremendous. And it is true that breath and vision and physiology are involved in whatever it is that someone's doing. So that's, that's it's fun to think about state control as something that increases people's adaptive capacity in any domain. Yeah. Easygoing and high performer don't tend to go hand in hand. And yet easygoing people tend to try more things or more adventurous. I'm going to actually just borrow something I learned from you, Daniel, which is that there are behaviors that that lower the baseline on our life. There are behaviors that keep the baseline stable and there, and there are behaviors that elevate the baseline. And by elevating the baseline means it opens up new opportunities, makes you more adaptive and functional. And state control, whether or not reading, whether or not through vision, or a combination of the two, I would argue regular breath work. You know, I really learned this from Brian. Regular breath work or vision crackles, it improves the baseline in your life. And I think the great success of meditation in recent years, apps like Headspace and Calm and Oak and things like that are wonderful tools because they tend to improve the baseline on one's life, right? We're trying to develop tools. We've been developing tools that allow you to do that and really feel the shift almost instantaneously. And I think that also, you know, speaks to why, you know, if you hang out with Wim Hof or you attend one of his seminars, you do Wim Hof breathing. I mean, you feel something right away. You can feel your state shifting. Because I've got these levers, you know, to my, how long I breathe, how long I hold and, you know, where I look and where I don't look and whether or not I close my eyes or go into panoramic vision. These are the tools of not self-control, but self-regulation. And really powerful. So I have some practical questions I want to come to, but I, I want to ask a couple tangential ones first, because I know a lot of our listeners are people who study various, call it biohacking type methodologies. And Brian, you actually said a couple of things that relate to this. So the state app obviously doesn't need additional hardware, but I have some hardware questions. So hypoxia training, when you're talking about increased CO2 tolerance and being able to upregulate things like oxygen utilization and autophagy of senescent cells and things like that, do you, have you played with, do you use, recommend hypoxia training? Yeah. It's not going to be, I mean, to some degree, it's incorporated into the app. This isn't a robust function. Like this is not a free diving app, right? It's mildly using these things based off of your own CO2 tolerance to help you. It's a slowed breathing pattern. So any sort of slowed breathing pattern from your normal respiration rate is going to help, right? Thus, if I spend a block of time working on that to a large degree, create an adaptation and then make a change and within the app it customizes, right? Did that feel easy? Did that feel worse? Right. And then all of a sudden it starts to ramp up a little. 
and then it becomes easier there. And so it's, so it's just, it's, it's like a training protocol to develop this whole, you know, notion behind CO2 tolerance and, and what we've seen with inside the free diving world to a large degree. And even within the yogic world to where it's like, blow this breathing down, all of a sudden you, you become calmer. You start to process things a little bit better because stress goes up. You know, as Andrew was talking about earlier, like traveling and stuff is, his CA2 tolerance was probably off. And we've seen that across the board, especially with myself. And the, the interesting thing is emotional stress or things that we're doing to ourselves throughout our day without the physicality of it is actually having more of an impact on that CO2 tolerance than physical stress where, you know, after a workout, my CO2 tolerance probably isn't very high, but if I can get it, the sooner I can get that back to baseline, which is not, it's not really hard to do within a one hour period where if I'm cooked emotionally and psychologically, that is going to be a long-term thing you're going to see. Like we're talking days on end until we can get that back to normal baseline. <laughs> so obviously slow breathing is kind of hypoxic. So, you know, we have fun machines like the Libo2 systems that do the hypoxic, hyperoxic training. And uh, I'm sure you guys have played with yeah. those. I, I particularly think it's fun to be able to alternate between those for the autophagy and then the ramp up the ATP production. But I think something that's fun is to recognize how much of that can be done just by changing breathing rate. Exactly. Yes. And, and I, and I have played with all of that. Like I have played with all the altitude machines, all I've got to, you know, and the interesting thing is, is you go and look at, put, put a pulse oximeter on and you get in one of those or you start using one and you see those O2 saturations drop below 94% and you're working and, and at first it really sucks, but then you start to make the adaptations and things start to change. Right. Well, if you go and use a, you know, hold your breath for a specific amount of time, give yourself one or two breaths, go right back to it. You can start to lower that and yep. keep low that for some time. And you can start to create a lot of the same effects that are happening. So another hardware-based tech that people engage in breath training is HRV, right? Heart rate variability training. And typically, and at least very simplistic HRV, now obviously we have biofeedback there to customize it, but there is you know, some thought about being more dominant on inhale or more dominant on exhale and more dominant or top bottom holds. Have you guys done kind of HRV training with the type of breath work you're doing to gain, to have the insight about what's happening parasympathetically? Yeah, a little bit. We wanted to put together a technology that relied on the minimum of hardware, right? Yes. An app or even, and from that experience with the app, something that you could actually incorporate in your moment to moment couldn't, you know, pick up the app and, and do a session. So we've done a little bit of that. And, you know, we've worked with colleagues that, um, uh, that are also uh, using, using those tools. I think it's very interesting. I think that in real time, you know, snapping on a device is, you know, a real time stress event is, is a little bit here. A regular practice, you know, if you're going to do a morning session or evening session, which I, I would hope everyone would have these days, you know, a, a state control, um, uh, practice that they use while they're on to meditation or something more like breathing vision. Um, we haven't moved things into heart rate variability too much. My laboratory, on the other hand, is evaluating all the everything from sweating to heart rate to pupil size to if we can, we're deep below the skull. And so that's where I think in time data are going to come out, you know, that that are going to tell us what the new protocols. I mean, ultimately, yeah. you know, the reason I maintain the laboratory as a scientist, deeply interested in the what we don't know yet, which are the, you know, what are the aspects of our physiology that we can tap into through different practices and what, you know, what are some of the underlying molecular mechanisms that 
you know, I think we want to evolve new practices, but science takes time. And in the meantime, there are already these, these valuable, valuable tools. So as we, as we wrap up here today, can you guys share some things that would be already applicable for our listeners that are useful either in breath or in vision or both? And then when the uh, state app comes out, we will update everybody and send an email out so that people can get it because it's something we're excited about and support. But if someone wants to start, uh, and obviously it, it doesn't have the feedback for personalization of full training, but if someone wants to start some breath work and some vision practice, what can they start with? Yeah. On power, speed, and dirts, we actually have a, a, a CO2 to a tolerance calculator where it's an ex it, it's a timed exhale te test. This isn't a anything we created. This is an old school free diving application that, that they use to set tables for doing actual hypoxic or CO2 tolerance building sets, right? And, and this test we found really helps with understanding A, mechanics, B, your CO2 tolerance, and C, your psychological reaction to as CO2 builds. And what's happening is you're having to slowly exhale. You know, if I have to dump air really quick, you know, we've got we may have a mechanical issue. We may have a CO2 tolerance issue. And psychologically, you may be not very comfortable. That said, getting a baseline with that is critical. It'll help you understand where you're at when you have a baseline. So when you understand how long you can really do it after doing it a number of times, then when you start to see that increase, you know you're making these jumps, right? So from a protocol standpoint, I think it's really simple is using something like a box breathing set or even a pranayama, like a one, one, two, one breathing protocol. So a one, one, two, one would be an inhale, a breath hold and exhale and a breath hold or pause on the end. Right. And so if, if I was inhaling for six seconds, one, one, two, one would be six, six, 12, six. My exhale would be double time. So we're working on more of a parasympathetic, a longer exhale, right? A box breathing set on a one, 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 one would be six, 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 right? So in well for six, hold for six, exhale for six. And then find the, an apnea protocol. Something very easy would be like a one, two, two, right? So it's an inhale. So if it was six seconds, then it would be a 12 second breath hold. Then it would be a 12 second exhale. So I'm just, an apnea only is going to refer to holding your breath longer than you've inhaled, right? Yep. Play around with those three and see what, like take some time, go through 10 sets of one, but don't do them all together. I mean, you may, you can, if you want, but go through each of them and write down how you felt after that. Did it, did it actually give me an alert, calm feeling bring me down? Did I feel like I needed to take a nap? You know, whatever's happening, then you can start to set where you're at. And based on your CO2 tolerance off of the power speed endurance, we, we actually calculate out a couple protocols for you to play with so that you don't have to do all the math on it. But it, it's roughly taking a little bit more than 50% of that CO2 tolerance and putting it into a protocol. So it's powerspeedendurance.com and then the measurement will be obvious where to find it? Yeah, it's under the learn tab and it's in there for people to go screw around with and they can really find a baseline. And so this baseline, once you've established a breathing protocol that works for you, if I go one, like if Andrew had it, like let's say he was using a 6 12 12 and he woke up this morning and 61212 was really difficult after three breaths, but he could normally do 10. We know that his stress is off and we know that he needs to back off a little. So maybe he goes to 51010. 10. If that continues in that fashion, if he's at 51010 10 or even drops to 488, we know there could be a problem probably occurring physiologically 
you know, getting sick, immune system, sure. something like that is happening underneath the hood that I need to be aware of. What do I need to do in order to make those changes? It's not more stress. I can tell you that. So it's probably de-stressing to some degree. So using some tools and using that understanding to actually pivot and make some reasonable choices, whether it's nutritionally, whether it's physically, whether it's more rest. So people can explore these three different breathing protocols. And they can look to see if their CO2 tolerance goes up and then also just pay attention to their state and see how meaningful it feels for them. Exactly. Andrew, what about vision? Is there something basic you can tell people to play with? Yeah. I mean, the simplest thing, you know, if I were just think, you know, in, you know, 10 seconds, if you, I would encourage people to start a practice in which they close their eyes and pay attention to their internal state. I would hope they would keep breathing. That would be a good thing to do generally. Nasal breathing, ideally. And then the other one is to learn how to go into panoramic vision, to look out, ideally outside, but this you can also do this inside, start to absorb the entire visual scene, meaning off in the periphery, sort of defocus the eyes. Okay, so the first one really teaches you to focus on yourself and your internal state. The, the panoramic vision, we know based on evolution, right, tends to put the visual system and the organism into more relaxed parasympathetic state. So I, I like to suggest, and people might get different results, right? This isn't hard and fast, but the next time you have an event where you're sort of, you're feeling triggered or you're feeling kind of ramped up, go into panoramic vision, try and go into that soft gaze where you're absorbing the whole visual field around you. Now there's an intermediate one as well. This is great for increasing powers of concentration. So looking at, a, at something, it can be your hand, it can be something a short distance away, or even across the street, a, a tree or something out the window, and trying to hold your focus on that while also thinking about your internal state and your vision, right? I would argue that, we can, that as humans, we can concentrate on two locations, our internal location and our, our inner self and an outer self at the same time, but probably not more than two. It's hard to think about three things. Maybe we're just toggling back and forth really fast. Who knows? So... The practice I think that's really powerful is where people learn to step through these different, uh, let's call them locations or time references. If you were to take a few moments each day, doesn't matter when, morning, evening, afternoon, and close your eyes and focus on your internal state, your breathing, kind of keeping track of your breathing as a sort of second hand on your experience, you're becoming ultra present. You're in the here and now. When you look out onto a visual scene and you let your, your visual field expand and you go into panoramic vision, you're not focusing on the here and now, you're focusing on the everything that exists. Now, in that moment, of course, right? There's nothing mystical about that statement. I would argue you're actually expanding your time reference. Things are happening in a distance that are over a period of time. And the way the brain works is it tends to use the visual system to calculate time. This is why a hunter sits there calculating where's the prey, where's the prey now, where's it, where's it going to be in a moment? It's, it's making it, you know, it's doing math, it's anticipating where it's going to be. So by going from internal state to kind of panoramic vision, you move through these different so-called space-time domains. Put simply, spend a couple of minutes each day thinking about your internal state with your eyes closed, then open your eyes and focus on something in your immediate environment. Focus on that while also paying attention to your internal state. And then try and take in the whole visual scene, ideally outside, and kind of let your vision just go everywhere. And maybe also pay attention to your internal state. When, and then it can go back into your yourself. So when you do that, what you're doing is you're training the brain to step between different space-time reference frames. Extremely powerful tool. Mm -hmm. 
totally free, totally easy. You know, I think that that practice alone embodies a lot of the different kind of meditative practices on a shorthand and can teach you to control where your brain is focusing. And then just as a point of reference, if you think about your typical day, your space-time reference moved into the text, then it's back on your email, then it's in the conversation that you're having. No wonder we're all becoming slightly ADD schizophrenic with this kind of space-time leaping. And as a final point, Brian, I like to talk about this. What if I told you that for eight hours, every 24-hour cycle, we're going to be completely insane? You know, your dead grandmother could walk in the room, serve you cookies. The cookies turn into a dog. The dog turns into poison, walks out, the roof caves in. You'd say, no way, that's crazy. That sounds like a horrible experience. But that's what happens when you go to sleep. You completely give up all space-time control. And I believe that a period of sleep every 24 hours is the way that we reset our capacity to anchor ourselves in space and time. If you've ever been sleep deprived, what's, you know, if you want to really get someone to fall apart, you sleep deprive them. And what falls apart is your ability to kind of stay present in the moment. You start, you, you kind of are sliding all over the place. So I would say the number one thing you can do is get really good night's sleep, right? Sleep is so key. I know you guys are developing tools to, for better sleep. And then the other one would be this focusing internally, focusing externally, and then focusing on everything and then back. Yep. You know, I, I don't know how much research there'd be to back this up, but the two tools that you're talking about together, I would argue there's a very strong case for it being a life extension technology. Because when you think about increased stress, increased sympathetic overtone, increasing probability for all types of disease, from autoimmune to neurodegen to neurocognitive to cancers, like we know that well, then being able to come out of sympathetic overtone and actually activate the parasympathetic system that does immune and digestive and respiratory and all kinds of physiologic repair, as well as in the hypoxic training, being able to actually increase autophagy of senescent cells and then increase biogenesis of mitochondria, as well as increase regulation of the neurologic system. Like if you just, if you just think about it from what causes the breakdown of the regulatory systems that leads to disease. These are things that are actually very high in the you know, flow besides helping people not feel anxious and be able to perform better. I think that's very meaningful from a what is the future of healthcare that prevents the need for sick care is tools like this. So it was a delight to have you both on the show. Thank you so much. This was a blast. We'll talk more soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Daniel. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.